This is Curious Minnesota, a Star Tribune project that sends staff from the state's largest newsroom hunting for the answers to great questions we receive from you, our readers. We're here to answer everything you want to know about the state's people, places, and culture. Welcome to Curious Minnesota. I'm your host, Hannah Sale. Today, we're going to be talking about an event nearly 70 years ago that dramatically reshaped life in the Twin Cities. I'm talking about the demise of the streetcar system, which had been a defining feature of what it meant to live in Minneapolis and St. Paul in the early 20th century. These trolleys that rumbled up and down the streets left such a significant legacy that people are still talking about them. Today's question, from an anonymous reader, is about the shady characters that oversaw the end of the streetcars. This reader wanted to know, was organized crime responsible for the end of the streetcar system? This story has everything. It's got mobsters and backroom deals and old-timey trolleys. We're talking today with frequent Curious Minnesota host Eric Roper, who recently wrote this story for our weekly column. Let's get into it. Eric, thanks for joining us today on the Curious Minnesota podcast. I love today's question. It is a huge part of Minnesota lore. It has an incredible cast of characters. And I love that the person who asked the question has sort of a family history tie. Can you tell us a little more about that? Right. So our question asker, the family lore is that her grandmother's friend was romantically involved with one of the mobsters in this story. And then she had to testify at the fraud trial. So that was sort of the, it's a family lore. We don't really know sort of like how much of that is real, but certainly sort of like an interesting twist in all this. Absolutely. I want to start by just directing everyone to go online and check out this story because it comes with an incredible lead photo. You can't even imagine that this is real. It looks like it could be photoshopped. Eric, Tell us what this photo is. So there's two men, Fred Osana and James Towey, whose name I think I'm mispronouncing, but they're both executives at Twin City Rapid Transit. And they're standing in front of a, a burning. Burning is probably an understatement for what's happening in the street. A conflagration. A conflagration. It's completely it's as on fire as it can be. <laughs> It's like outside somewhere. My favorite detail of this photo is that Fredo Santa is wearing a transparent plastic raincoat, which is a little hard to make out unless you look closely at what, what this is. What do you is. wear to a streetcar burning? Yeah, it seems like it's going to like melt if he gets too close. <laughs> but anyway, they're kind of grinning, holding this check in front of this burning streetcar. And when I was writing this story, I ended up making this kind of the lead of the story because I realized that this photo kind of tells you all the themes that you might want to know about this whole situation. So it kind of foreshadows cool. this story. All right, let's dive in. So tell me a little bit about the streetcar system in the Twin Cities. When was it most popular? So the streetcar system, a lot of it followed what we now would associate with the bus system, a lot of the same routes. But basically, it started in the 19th century as a horse-drawn system, and then it gets electrified, etc. And then it peaks in the 1920s, early 1920s. And then automobiles are making a big play, and people are buying cars and they're moving to the suburbs. So after the 20s, things just start to decline, decline, decline until World War II. And then there's gas rationing, tire rationing and no new cars. So everybody gets back on the streetcars again. But this is a very short lived sort of profitable moment for the streetcars. So it's very clear that these are not doing very well long term. And so it's kind of a question mark as to like what's going to happen next with the streetcar system. 
Right. Not just here, by the way, but like everywhere around the country. Right, right. Um, it was old technology. So an interesting thing about the Twin City Rapid Transit Company that ran these streetcars is that it was on the stock market. People could buy shares in this. That's not the way it is today. Tell us more about that. Yeah. So this is before a public entity ran the transit system. So basically, it was really like open to whoever wanted to buy shares on the New York Stock Exchange of Twin City Rapid Transit. And one of those people was Charles Green. This guy in New York who decides, I think this stock is kind of like, you know, I could make some money off of this. It's a little undervalued. He buys the stock and then he gets kind of mad because there's no dividends being paid because this company was kind of old school and they just like put the the profits back into retiring debt and improving service. You know, basic stuff. Yeah, sounds great. Yeah. And so, but Mr. Green is not happy with this and he <laughs> flies out to Minnesota to sort of make his voice known. You know, he's just one shareholder, but he's sort of like he's a shareholder so he's like he's trying to get some influence in the company so when he flies out here who does he meet with his stockbroker representative takes him to club carnival or club carnival <laughs> we're not sure it's the midwest it's carnival when i read it i think carnival <laughs> but it probably isn't carnival but this is a nightclub that was like maybe maybe not owned by notorious mobster kid can he was certainly there a lot but he had been a big deal he'd been basically the most notorious mobster in town since prohibition you know he was was linked to a couple murders, but never convicted of them. And he's also a shareholder, incidentally, in Twin City Rapid Transit. Hmm. So Charles Green and, and Kid Can kind of decide, OK, we're going to bring in Fred Osana, who's a well-connected criminal attorney in town. And the three of them are going to sort of plot a strategy to get enough power among shareholders to take over the company. I love this. Hatching a scheme in a nightclub with mobsters involved. This is like a scene out of a movie. Yeah, it is a very fascinating tale. And, I, and the building where this happened is still there. And I have a link to the Google Street View and the story where you can kind of compare what it used to look like. But basically, they end up doing it. It's successful. Green becomes president of Twin City Rapid Transit, you know, this New York investor guy. And he starts kind of just slashing things like he's getting rid of streetcar maintenance and he's pulling back on service. And we he's, don't need that. He's making a lot of like really kind of like threatening, crazy statements at the city council meetings. And people are getting a little like worked up about <laughs> Mr. Green. He's like all over the front page of the paper. <laughs> like there's one front page where there's many pictures of him just like making different faces at a meeting just to show how like exclamatory he was the whole time. So Osana, who's like a local guy and, and Kid Can, I mean, they're kind of like, oh, this is kind of getting out of control. <laughs> so Osana realizes he wants control of the company. So he starts consolidating behind the scenes and they end up with enough power among shareholders that they convince Green he's got to sell his shares. Green thinks he's selling his shares to a bunch of guys in Detroit, which sounds like, man, sounds all above board. But, but he ends up selling it unknowingly at the time to associates of Kid Can and Fred Osana. And this is how the gangster element, particularly Kid Can's world, consolidates power over the transit system. And this is in the early 1950s. Right. But these friends of Kid Can, like they were on the up and up, right? Like these are transit nerds, right? Yeah. They care about Like the Tommy system. Banks, the former bootlegger, you know, also notorious mobster. So Green says, oh, well, Santa's got a plan to bribe the Minneapolis City Council, which sets off all sorts of alarm bells. There's eventually seven entities investigating Twin City Rapid Transit. And they learn that among the people who are big owners of the stock are Tommy Banks and his brother and all these are people associated with Kid Can, Tommy Banks, his brother and Fred Osana. And they're like, oh, it's these racketeers. The same racketeers in the liquor industry, as one guy put it, have now moved into the Twin City Rapid Transit. So that's kind of the allegation, even though they couldn't prove that there was 
literal racketeering happening in Twin City Racketeers. Right, right. This is all innuendo and suggestion. There's no meat in this sandwich. Tell me why I should believe that Kid Cam and his buddies aren't running this like an upstanding business. Well, so this whole thing kind of dies down for a second and Osana's like, we're going to switch to buses, right? Okay. And that's kind of happening around the country, which Aaron Isaacs, who we quote extensively in the story, notes that the bus conversion was probably going to happen by 1960 regardless. But anyway, they're going to switch to buses. And so they start this conversion process. And the reason they were able to do the buses is because GM provided them with very nice financing. But obviously in that process, there's a lot of metal to unload and a lot of land to unload. So you had like the rails, the streetcars themselves, the overhead and underground electrical cables, all that has scrap metal value, which was substantial. And then there's land. And so they do all this. They do the conversion. The new buses roll in and then kind of like, I wouldn't say life goes on, but I mean, it's sort of things keep keep moving. And then by 1959, these federal indictments come in and it's basically, oh, well, they undervalued everything to get kickbacks. And so a lot of people made a lot of money illegally off of the dismantling of the streetcar system. There's a bunch of indictments. Among them is Kid Can. So Mr. Blumenfeld, he, he's a part owner of one of the companies that's buying real estate from Twin City Rapid Transit. One of the foremen testifies that he was seen driving up and parking at all these cable removal projects. You know, just... Yeah, right. But he's indicted in, in addition to everybody else. And this trial, obviously, is a huge news. I mean, it's just like dominating the headlines for days, especially because Kid Can is now involved. And everybody gets convicted except for Kid Can. Fred Osana gets convicted. Barney Larrick, the general manager, gets convicted. The two scrap dealers who are most involved get convicted. And a realtor gets convicted. But Kid Can gets off. Okay, you know that my motto is, if anyone can, Kid Can. <laughs> but truly, I need you to explain to me how he got off. So it's a little hard to to say for sure. But what we do know is that just historically, I think people and juries, in addition to everybody else, were kind of afraid to cross Kid Can. There was a murder case of a journalist in town, for example, that he was charged with. He got off on that, too. But there was a lot of like evidence that he may have been there. Can you tell me a little bit more about the larger forces that were at play at this time? Because again, the the whole gangster storyline is very sexy, but there were a lot of like less sexy things going on that really precipitated the downfall of the streetcar system. Right. I think the theme here is that the underworld characters sort of took advantage of a situation that was kind of playing out anyway. And so you have General Motors obviously provides this very nice financing. Meanwhile, General Motors, Firestone and Standard Oil have invested in National City Lines, which was buying and converting streetcar systems around the country. So a lot of people like to say, oh, well, it was all GM's fault. And nationally, that is not untrue. I mean, they were certainly a big force and they provided the financing in this case, but National City Lines did not buy the Twin City Rapid Transit Company. But that's sort of like one of the elements in the background here is that getting new buses was not hard. Aaron Isaacs told me, like, if you wanted to buy a new streetcar, a bunch of new streetcars, you got to pay for them. You got to pay the whole freight of them. With this, it was like just a little money down and you can get a bunch of buses rolling in because GM, you know, they were doing great at that time. And so that enabled that switch like pretty easily, basically. Okay, so so Kid Can gets off. What happens to the rest of these guys who are involved? They all go to jail. Is that it? 
So uh, a bunch of them did go to prison. It, the other guy who's in the lead photo of the story, Mr. Toey, I had to like track this down because I was worried that I was sort of like, oh, I'm saying he's kind of involved in this terrible thing. I should f- figure out what happened. He was too ill to stand trial. And there's a whole controversy about that, too. So a bunch of these people went to prison is the short of it. There were a lot of convictions. And so, you know, but that's it turns out that's not the end of the story. So that's like about ni- early 1960s. This is still a not a public entity yet. And so a bunch of local business owners buy up Twin City Rapid Transit. Included among them is Carl Polad. And so when I wrote this story, a lot of people on Facebook and the comments said, you should have mentioned Carl Polad. You left out Carl Polad. And I like didn't. This was like kind of blindsided me. I still don't think it was actually relevant to this particular question, but I think we should just talk about it briefly because it is an interesting epilogue. So this group buys the Twin City Rapid Transit Company. They create a parent company called Minnesota Enterprises, Inc. It turns out later we realized that they were taking profit from the transit company and putting it into other ventures, including buying an airline. And then the airline later bought the Tropicana Hotel and like things like this. And this, I'm getting this from a a Minnesota History Magazine story by Steve Dornfeld. But basically, this became very controversial because eventually the taxpayers had to pay for the company. And so the idea that these guys had come in and basically bought the company and then like siphoned stuff off rather than investing in new buses and investing in maintenance and stuff like that. And then we're going to get paid by the public at the end of the day after all that. It left a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths (laughs) that apparently is still there because a lot of people were mad that we didn't mention it. I don't think it has to do with the conversion itself, but it just means that that wasn't the end of the story. It like kept things, bad things kept happening. And then they created the Metropolitan Transit Commission in 1967, but it wasn't until 1970 that they actually took over Twin City Lines and then created what we now know as the sort of the bus system of the region. Nice. Thank you so much, Eric. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat about this. It's a great story. It's a fascinating story, and I think it's worth retelling as many times as possible because some of this history kind of gets lost after time. So it's worth revisiting for sure. All right. That's it for today's show. But before we go, we had a reader call in and share some of her family stories about the streetcar system. And we wanted to share that with you. Hi, I read your streetcar article. I got very excited about it. I'm 71, and one of my first memories is trying to catch the streetcar with my mother. I know it's probably three, maybe. My would-be father spotted my would-be mother on a streetcar. It was like in Dinkytown, and my mother was a young teacher going to St. Louis Park to teach. And my dad kind of got hit by lightning, and he kind of decided that was it, I guess. He arranged to be respectfully introduced to her. But anyway, I got a big kick out of your little piece. Thank you very much. Bye. I will leave a link in the show notes to Eric's story, which has more details and some of those great photos we talked about. And we'd love to hear your feedback about this podcast or any questions you'd like to see us tackle here at Curious Minnesota. So send us a note at curious at startribune.com. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Curious Minnesota. We want to hear from you. Ask questions and read more stories online at startribune.com backslash curious. Our show is recorded at the Star Tribune's headquarters in beautiful downtown Minneapolis. And our music is produced by Matt Gilmer. If you like the show, please rate us on iTunes or leave a review. And until next time, stay curious.